as he comes to bring the word. We love you, man. Thank you, Pastor Charles. We are going around the world to start with. So yes, um, we Sue and I just came back from Thailand and we were in the northernmost part of Thailand in a town called Masai. And uh, it's actually the northernmost city in Thailand. It borders Myanmar. The reason we went there is as a church, we are exploring um, our cross-cultural mission vision of connecting with some unreached people groups. And that's because, you know, a lot of, a lot of cross-cultural ministry that churches do have a focus often of going to Christian groups to encourage them in poorer nations. That's absolutely valid and we need to still be doing that. We do that. But also what we want to do is to have a commitment from our hearts to spread the gospel to those who have never heard about Jesus. And you would be surprised if you do any general research on Google, there are thousands of tribal cultures that have never heard the gospel, not once. And so a lot of them are actually in Myanmar. And uh, they have actually over 400 people groups in Myanmar. And so a couple of things happened. Is part of us, us as a church saying one of our mission's values is to reach and unreach people groups. We're not really sure how we're going to do that. And then we connected with um, a gentleman that Sue and I knew back in 1980. Um, top secret, don't tell anybody this, but Sue actually knew him in the 70s. Um, so his name's Alan. He actually had a passion for like 20 plus years to reach people in Myanmar. Didn't know how he was going to do it. And uh, I'll tell you full, his full story one day. Uh, so he went over there. And because we'd already knew him and we'd met with him the last few years at our national conference in, um, on the Gold Coast, he's been coming over. And he was telling me about the work that he's doing. And so a couple of things sort of happened in sequence very quickly and I sort of felt, with, along with our missions team, that maybe we should go and explore should we be involved in what he's doing. So what he does is he trains people from Myanmar in church planting, church leadership, and they go back to their unreached villages and preach the gospel and plant a church. They do other things like run, they're planning to run some preschools, they do women's ministry. And so Sue and I went there for a very quick five-day explore. Um, so it's like a border town. It's a bit like Aubrey-Wodonga. Um, Maasai is in Thailand and you simply just go through the border crossing over the river and you're in Burma um, in a city called Tacha Lake. And so we were right on the border. In fact, from where we were sleeping, it only took us five-minute walk to the border crossing. And so it's a very busy town. A lot of Burmese people actually come across to work. Um, and so it's not, he's not training Thai people to plant churches. He's training totally Burmese people. So out of the five days we were there, uh, we spoke in here's a, like a Bible college. So we did three full days of teaching in a Bible college um, that he's running there. Um, and over there, he's got four years. You can do a complete degree um, in, in his Bible college. And so we met some of the fourth-year students as well as some of these students that have only been there this year. And uh, we also went into Burma or into Myanmar for a day. So they've purchased a property. So, in fact, on the screen um, behind me, and I hope on the feed you can see the piece of land up there, so we crossed the border into Myanmar and we drove for just over two and a half or about two and a half hours um, into Burma. And uh, we got to another town that's on a border between Myanmar and Laos. 
And so they've bought this little piece of land. It's only about 30 metres by 30 metres. And they want to build um, a double-storey building to start um, a women's centre, a preschool and a Bible training facility. And it will be run by the local Myanmar people from his college. And one of the reasons they've chosen that strategically is because they have a vision to reach into Laos as well because a lot of those tribal groups cross the river. You know, the sort of modern borders don't actually define tribal history, um, you know, in a, in a political sense that, that what we as Westerners often think. Um, tribal groups have been moving in and out across rivers for centuries, really. And so they want to reach into Laos as well. One of the reasons they want to do some women's ministry is because uh, um, traditionally in Myanmar, a lot of the, the young girls, they can be married as young as 12. So I know that might, you know, try and get your head around that. So we actually went, when we were over there in Myanmar, we went to a Christian home, had lunch with the family, and one of their daughters was 16 and she'd been married for a year already. So we met her and her husband. Um, they're very tribal people, so part of the problem is, is trying to educate them around women's hygiene, um, education is almost non-existent, and so effectively they just get married and have their own children as teenagers. And so that's one opportunity that they, they're looking to in the future. Um, one of the students in the Bible college got appendicitis while we were there, had to be rushed to hospital, you can see a picture of us, of us with Chris, his name was. Um, I, I spoke to Alan yesterday and he said Chris is much better um, he was in a lot of pain the day we were there. He had his appendix removed. They actually burst, Charles and I were talking about it. And so he, he was in quite a bit of discomfort. But Chris actually has a vision to go and reach a group of people um, sort of halfway down the coast in Myanmar to um, what's called the Sea Gypsies. The, the real technical name is the Ceylon people. And there's, again, they're different groups of tribes that live right on the sea, thousands of tiny islands, um, never heard the gospel. They live on either the islands or they live in boats. And so they're, they're effectively hunter and gatherers in the sea. And so part of their long-term vision, and Chris really wants to go down there and help bring the gospel um, to the sea gypsies for the first time, um, probably at some point in the future. So I'm just giving a bit of an update while you're there. Please continue to pray about our missions program. One of the great things about the East Campus at Uni Hill and the North Campus at Uni Hill is the long historical cross-cultural ministry that we have as a heritage. And so effectively our missions team is trying to build on that and um, this is one of the avenues we believe that God is going to use uh, for us in the future. So we're exploring, we're exploring that opportunity. I could tell you some more funny stories. We tried to get into Laos and um, we, we didn't have the right sort of paperwork. We thought we did. And so when we went to sort of the property and we prayed over the property for the building and for the establishment of the ministry there, and then we just jumped back in the car, went another five minutes to the border between Myanmar and Laos. And there's this huge border crossings, this massive building, um, but there's nobody there. Nobody's actually crossing the border. So we, we got stuck there probably 35 minutes. Um, and it was like being in a movie scene. You know when you can't understand anyone speaking? And so our hosts are trying to explain to the um, immigration and the po local police that we were just going across and coming straight back. Um, but they, effectively, they didn't want to let us cross because our paperwork wasn't right. But here we are, so we can't understand anything. There's like six officials yelling and talking to, to our guides. And then the officials pull out their phones, start taking photos of Sue and I. 
right? Um, but there was one policeman who spoke a bit of broken English, Sue, and uh, he said, it's okay, it's okay. And they'd take photos of our passport and there's all this conversation going on and, you know, we thought we were going to end up in a, in a, a Myanmar prison for a while. But in, in, the, in the end they said, no, you can't come in. So we said, that's fine. I, I didn't actually want to go in, but our host wanted to take us there because of their vision. But um, it's all part of the fun of the adventure of cross-cultural ministry. And uh, so, look, just continue to pray to see what God does there. And, um, we, you know, we feel we're going to explore it further on whether we have an ongoing connection and maybe take some teams there. It's actually very easy and affordable to get there. Um, if we do take teams, it's very cheap to stay there. We stayed in a, in a little hotel or really a guest house that cost a total of $15 per night. And let me say the bed was like concrete. So... Uh, <laughs> There was another guest room sort of across the road from where we were staying that was 30 Australian dollars a night, but they were booked out. We couldn't even get to see a room. Um, but, look, we had a t- flushing toilet, running water. We, we were actually were fine. So uh, let's see what God does, hey, with missions and going forward and cross-culturally. So this morning I, I want to talk to you out of First John. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open to John chapter 1. So, sorry, the Gospel of John. I said First John, but John chapter 1, um, the Gospel of John. You know, when we think about who Jesus is, now coming around Christmas, I don't know if you're really ready for Christmas in our culture. Of course, people celebrate it as a family time, as holidays, our annual summer holidays, businesses closed down. There's a lot of eating and, and celebration and gathering together. Um, in fact, yesterday, Sue and I just put up our Christmas tree in our home. We're a bit late this year because uh, we'd been travelling. You never guess the colour of our Christmas tree. Sorry? It's purple. That's absolutely correct. Uh, so pray for me because, uh, you know, I have a purple kitchen and a purple Christmas tree to go with it. Uh, so, now we put up the purple Christmas tree yesterday. But, you know, it's, I've been thinking around because, of course, all, you know, all the nativity scenes that we see in our, in our modern culture, they sort of are effectively they're reproductions from the Middle Ages of what people think it would have looked like when Jesus was born. So, you know... We have this whole thing about Jesus in a manger and normally, you know, that, that literal word is actually a, a feeding trough for animals. But, of course, it's sanitised in the way it was sort of reproduced in the Dark Ages through the sort of Renaissance images that we see. And so we often, when we think about who is the real Jesus, sometimes we, you know, we even sing the Christmas carol, Jesus, meek and mild, you know, no, no crying he makes. We have these quite, these sort of images of Jesus projected into our heads by the culture that we sit in. Uh, Of course, probably the most famous image of Jesus is the one in the middle there where he's got blonde hair and blue eyes. I mean, he must have passed it on to me because um, I've got, well, my hair's grey now. I've got grey hair and blue eyes. But, of course, you know, Jesus was, in our culture, in our terminology, he's Middle Eastern. He wouldn't have had blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, And yet that's probably the most popular image of Jesus that you see in icons, um, in reproduction paintings, in movies, all that sort of stuff. We see this sort of image of Jesus as really being partly Italian almost, you know, someone that's actually um, got all the looks going for him. Of course, if you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies about the actual, the way Jesus looked is he was nothing to behold. The physical appearance of Jesus was nothing special. Um, of course, the gospel writers don't even mention what he looked like because in their culture it just wasn't important. It was who he was, not what he looked like. 
But, you know, humans for centuries have been trying to reproduce some sort of image that they think Jesus could or should have looked like. Um, in fact, um, you know, having the privilege of travelled to many countries and cultures around the world um, to preach and do ministry, I've seen all sorts of reproductions of what Jesus should have looked like. You know, been to Japan, uh, which Dave actually just got back from Japan, and, you know, the nativity scenes over there, Jesus looks Japanese. Um, I've done a lot of work in Africa over the years, and I've seen a lot of reproductions of Jesus who looks totally African, uh, even with the, the afro or the, the frizzy hair. Um, what's interesting is uh, when I was in Bible college um, a number of years ago now, probably about 25, 30 years ago, there was a historical archaeological push in the theological world to reconstruct what Jesus probably looked like in reality. And there's this movement called the search for the historical Jesus. And so these people who, some of them, by the way, are not Christians in this movement called the search for the historical Jesus, they think Jesus lived, but he actually was not God. And so they tried to, on all the archaeological evidence of, you know, skeletal remains that have been found in around Palestine, around Israel over the last uh, hundred years or so, they reconstructed this image of the common person, what would a man look like in that particular place at that time period, and that's the one on the right you can see there, on your right, is they, they actually they hired professional, um, what do you call them, people that reconstruct faces and so on, and they put that together. If you Google that, you can read the whole article and story behind it. But really, we just don't know what he looked like because it wasn't important to the people at the time. But who he is, is very important. Who he is is very important. And so, you know, around Christmas time, I wonder what we think about Jesus. Now, I know many of you, you know, both here at North Campus and at East Campus, we, we have a particular idea of who we think Jesus is. But one of the struggles I find in my life is when circumstances in my life are difficult or painful, when I'm asking God to actually help me because I do believe in Jesus, I do actually believe Jesus is God, and I get no direct immediate response or intervention from God, this is what I think we all tend to do, which is what I do. We reinterpret who we think Jesus is based on our current circumstance. And really what we should be doing is reinterpreting who Jesus really is based on the people who knew him, like John. So the, the struggle is for us, we have these images of Jesus in our head, whether you're Christian or if it's the first time you've ever heard about who the real Jesus is. You've, ever, you've never either been inside a church or not for a long time. And so you may, even, you may even think there's no God. But whatever your thoughts are around Jesus, here's the issue. What we think about who he is, it dictates how we relate to him. So if we think that Jesus is not God, or there is no God at all, then that's how we relate to him. We'll have no relationship whatsoever. If you think Jesus is just a fairy tale or a myth, well, you'll treat it like a children's story, you know, like the three little pigs. It's Pastor Nick's favourite sermon, by the way, three little pigs. If you think that Jesus was, well, he was, he was a good teacher, you know, his morals were radical for the time. I mean, no one had ever taught to forgive 70 times 7. That forgiveness is a key factor in relationships and you need to forgive continuously. No one else had ever taught that. That's a good, that's a good principle in life. So whether I think he's God or not, 
Sometimes we just take his principles and we'll apply them. Our culture effectively has taken a lot of his principles and applied them to the Western way of living with some degree of success, some degree of not success. But if you think he's just a good moral teacher, you know, forgive as you've been forgiven, um, life comes through sacrificing yourself, you know, love one another. If you, you know, show grace, we've been singing about mercy. If he's just a good moral teacher, you're just going to take some principles and think, if I apply them to my life, then that's, I don't have to have any other connection to Jesus whatsoever. And so your view of how you think about Jesus or your interpretation of the circumstances of your particular life right now impact or cloud who you think Jesus really is. And so what I want to do is just in the short time we have together today is we're going to go and have a listen to what John has to say about who Jesus is straight up. The very first thing that he says in his memoirs. Now, we don't call them memoirs. You know, they're not strictly biographies, the Gospels. We call them Gospels because it means the good news or the good news about Jesus. But its writing style is really John, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the three Gospel authors, write effectively their reflections of the stories of Jesus. So they're, they're in different sequences. They're not, they don't follow the same structure because they're actually presenting their relationship, particularly John, with Jesus. The interesting thing about John is, in fact, he is in the special group of the 12 disciples. So occasionally, when Jesus was doing ministry or healing or deliverance, he would say to the 12 disciples, Peter, James, John, you come with me. The rest of you stay here. And John actually had access to a whole range of stuff that not all the other disciples at the time did. The other thing we know about John is, of course, he was the one relationally closest to Jesus. The Bible calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, of course, at the Last Supper, John's the one that rests his head on the shoulder of Jesus. So we, we know enough to say, let's have a real listen to the way John describes the real Jesus because John knew him, lived with him, spent that whole three, three and a half years travelling and ministering with him. He heard Jesus preached. He watched Jesus heal. He watched Jesus deliver. He saw the transfiguration. Now, that was one of the little events that only three of the disciples witnessed firsthand. He saw Jesus be crucified. He saw the resurrected Jesus. And so because he's a personal witness and a personal, had a personal relationship, human relationship with Jesus, what does he have to say about who Jesus is? And the way John starts his, his gospel writings is totally unique from the other gospel writers. So, for example, when you read um, Matthew's gospel, he starts with the whole Jewish lineage of Jesus' family tree, from Abraham down to through King David down to Jesus. And Matthew does that because he's writing to, largely at the time, a Jewish audience. When you get to Mark, Mark actually starts his gospel with a prophecy of John the Baptist who will prepare the way for Jesus, but then goes straight into Jesus being tempted and then ministering. Luke, Luke actually starts his story of Jesus around Zachariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, and in fact Jesus' mother Mary, they were her cousins. But John doesn't do any of that. John actually starts with the cosmic fact about Jesus 
that actually he's going out of his way to explain who the real Jesus is. So let's read it together. We're going to read a couple of verses uh, together and let me just... I've got to get my glasses to, to read these days. Does anyone else have that trouble? Your arms get too short? I have the same... I don't know why my arms are shrinking. Does it, do you find that? My arms shrink all the time. Anyway, here we go. So I'm reading from the NIV translation. It doesn't matter what translation you have. Um, but please, if you have a Bible in front of you, I want you to read it um, as we follow on. It's on the screen as well, but if you have a preferred translation. Um, so John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him... Nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now we're just going to skip to verse 14. You can read the, read the whole chapter uh, later today. Verse 14, he repeats the same phrase, the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We were singing that. I don't know if you picked it up. We were singing the fullness of Christ. We sang that in one of those songs this morning. John testified, this is verse 15, um, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, he was, sorry, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have received all, oh, sorry, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, so he's repeated that again from verse 14. God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So John doesn't give us any historical family tree, no miracles, cosmic reality. In the beginning was the word. Now the strange thing is John uses a unique terminology or a title for Jesus that no other biblical author does. He calls him the word. Now, of course, he, John writes this in, in the common Greek of his day, which was like the very big trading language that was used, and he calls him the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's the Word. Now, here John's doing a couple of things. Let me tell you what he's doing. He's got a couple of cultures that he actually lives in, John. One is a Jewish culture. And with the Jewish culture, they immediately, when they hear these words or they read this scroll for the first time, they immediately think of Genesis 1.1. John has done this on purpose because for a Jewish mindset in the, in, at this point in history, they don't believe that God would become a man. How is that even possible? And so John takes the first opening sentence of the Hebrew scriptures of creation, it comes, it's up on the screen here. In the beginning, God, 
So John says, in the beginning, the word. So if you had a Jewish frame set, that is going to jump out at you straight away. And there's a couple of reasons. One is, Jews already talked about the word of God as the creating force. And of course, we know if we read the rest of Genesis, that, and the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. So when God speaks, creation came. The word came. When God uses his word, this concept of this God's word in the Jewish mindset was living, eternal, and in actual fact was almost a person. Not a literal person as we understand it, but the, let me give you a couple of references if you're taking notes. In Psalm 30, 33 verse 6, it actually says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were created. It's almost like this personification of God. When God speaks, his living eternal word accomplishes things, does things like a person would do things. So create, make something. Psalm 107 verse 20. He sent out his word and he healed them. That's, you know, it's God. when God speaks, people get healed. The other thing is Jewish people, they could not mention the name of God. So... We use, in English, you know, some Bible translations use the word Yahweh. And that really evolved because um, for Jewish people, you could not actually, the, the name of God was unmentionable. It was so holy that human beings could not actually speak the name. And they came up with a way of referring to God without using his holy name. So Yahweh is one of those expressions. But they had other expressions. So in, in Hebrew, the opening statement of Genesis, in the beginning God, is only two words. It literally says, beginning Elohim, God. Beginning Elohim. In John's New Testament, he says, beginning the word. This living creating that was there at, at the creation. John is linking it for the Jewish people of his culture. And so... The other thing is sometimes in synagogue readings, so when they would get together, or we get together on a Sunday, when they got together for Sabbath in their synagogues in the first century, because they couldn't say the name of God, they would often refer to God himself as the word of God. Or when they read the scrolls, they would say, now some church traditions do this, hear the word of the Lord, right? So John is saying to the Jewish people who read this, he is God. In fact, the second sentence there, he says, he was with God and was God. It leaves no doubt. So John, who knew Jesus personally, is trying to describe for us the bigness of God, the greatness of Jesus. We're saying, you are the one above it all. We were singing that this morning. But that is who Jesus is. He is God with God at the beginning. He was not created at some point. His human birth was not his start. He pre-existed before anything came into being, whether things that are seen or things that are unseen. He pre-existed. And he's not, he's not one God of many gods. You know, sometimes in some cultures I've been to, I went to uh, a small Hindu country um, a number of times for a few years and one time we went into this lady's house who had just become a Christian out of um, Hinduism. And the thing I spotted when I walked into her house, they, the minister took us into her house and we were praying for her and her family, 
is on her, she had a shelf, so she has all these Hindu gods on the shelf. You know, Vishnu's, Vishnu's there and there's about six of them. And then she's got a statue of Jesus at one end. It's like adding him to the rest of them to make sure she doesn't offend any of them. <laughs> but he's not a god, right? He's not one of many. He was with God and is God. Now, you understand John's got this dilemma. How do we take the limitation of human comprehension and language to describe the fullness of God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ? It's a very challenging thing to do. But he's opening statements here about Jesus is the word who was with God and is God beginning. Before anything else was done, created, he was there and is God. It's interesting, the word with, you know, in English, we probably don't give it much uh, credence in our translations, but the word John uses here in his language when he writes this actually is a word of intimacy. It's this idea of being face-to-face, like right up nose against nose with somebody. So, you know, theologians talk about Jesus being the same essence of God because, again, we're restricted with language and comprehension in our human ways. But it's not that Jesus is separate from the Father. He was, he was right there with the Father before anything was created. In fact, everything that is created came through him and he is God. So this is, this is the thing, first thing that John's doing. He's trying to explain to Jews that this Messiah you've been waiting for, this is him. In the beginning, before anything else created. So Jesus is God. However, whatever version or image that you have of who Jesus is or what he has or hasn't done for you or what help you think you, you need from him or, or whether he's not helped you or, or whether you don't think you need him, Jesus is God. One person who spent years with him is trying to describe that at some point in history, God punched a hole through time and space and creation and entered into our humanness, the one who actually created all things and lived among us. Verse 14, the word dwelt among or lived with us is probably a a more modern English way of saying that same phrase. The Logos actually lived here, the one who was from the beginning and created all things. Now, the second thing John's doing is he's trying to appeal to Greek speakers because in ancient Greece, probably a bit like, it's probably, the more I studied this, the more I thought it's probably not like, unlike today, there was a whole lot of different philosophies about why we're here. You know, if you go to university today, you can study philosophy, you study Plato, who came some centuries after Christ. You you can study a whole range of different ideas. Now, the Greeks were known for being very philosophical and they had actually the time of Christ, they had many different sort of philosophical schools of thought on why human beings are here, why the earth is here. And, of course, the Greeks had many gods. They didn't just have one god like the Jews. They thought there were many gods. And so there was all these debates about the purpose for existence And here's the cruncher, the word they used in these philosophical debates was the word logos. So to someone in the first century as a Greek person, when they read this, they thought about the reason for living. In fact, it literally can be translated that way. 
we could rewrite this quite accurately and say in the beginning was the reason for life. That's a, that's a genuine Greek translation. And the reason for life was with God. And the reason for life was God. He was God in the beginning. And verse 14, the reason for life became human and he lived among us. So when we, th- we don't think of the word logos very often. We don't use the word. It's where we get our English word logic. The Englification, the Anglicanization of the Greek word logos is logic, reasoning. We should be able to think this through. We should be able to debate it and work out how do we get here, why are we here, what's our existence all about. But here's the crazy thing. Because there were so many different versions of these Greek philosophers trying to explain the logos, the reason for life, why we are all here, by the time Jesus was born, scholars say the dominant thinking of the word logos is this. Because we can't agree on the reason for life, there mustn't be a reason for life. In the end, they start, the Greeks started using the word logos not for logical reasoning, but it had this sort of double play. Well, we can't figure it out, so there's no reason. Sounds a bit like uh, liberalism today, right? <laughs> Everything's relative. There is no reason. So again, if you're Greek and you live in the first century and you read this or you hear someone describe Jesus, you get that the, the words that have actually been say, said is he is the reason for life. So in fact, if you read the next verses, John says, in him was what? Life. He is the reason why we are here. So one of the reasons we gather together is because the word logos or the whole way John gives him Jesus this title is he's trying to unpack this concept. If you want to find a reason for your life, it's only found through Jesus who created all things, sustains all things. Your life only has meaning in him. Everything was created by him and for him. It says that in Colossians chapter 1. So what's the other alternative? We, people create their own meanings for life. Meaning for life is be successful. The meaning for life is have a family. The meaning for life is to pay my mortgage. The meaning for life is to have a good time. The meaning for life is to stay happy. The meaning for life is to keep my good looks. Not me personally. Mine went some time ago. But this is what we do. We try and create our own meaning but Jesus is the meaning for life. He is the reason we are here. And John is trying to remind us today, as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, that whatever your circumstance, however you interpret your life, this baby in a manger was the reason for everything. In him was life and light, which is a play on, on the idea that the Bible often uses those words interchangeably. And that Jesus came into the darkness that is the world, a world without hope, a world without knowing why they're here. And he penetrated that darkness. The world didn't understand it. John says, the world didn't understand this light. The darkness did not overcome this light because Jesus sustains all life. So, look, my, my simple encouragement, you know, as we enter in this Christmas period for you today is I... 
whatever your personal view or struggle is with God right now, just remember those two things. Jesus is God and he's the reason for life. So here's, here's how I do it practically. I'm going to wrap up now. When, when I have a need, which, you know, I'm like everybody else. There's nothing superhuman about um, being on a church leadership team. We're, we're all the same as everybody else. But when I have a need or I'm suffering and I'm in pain, when I say, Jesus, will you help me, I'm speaking to the Logos that was in the beginning. I'm speaking to the one that sustains all life. I'm speaking to the one that pre-existed before I existed. But if I think I'm speaking to someone who is just a moral teacher or someone maybe doesn't really care about me, that's how I'm going to interact with him. When I read his written word, so the written word of God, I'm actually reading Jesus through the word. One of the reasons we read the word of God and apply it to our lives is I'm being transformed by the power of the word, the logos, the beginning. I'm not speaking just to some, some you know, power in the sky that may or may not be there. I'm speaking to the one who sustains all things. He is at the right hand of the Father. But if you think, oh, maybe God's not hearing me, maybe God doesn't care. I don't you know, I didn't hear from him the last time I spoke to him. Maybe I should just give up this whole Christian thing. Then that's how you treat him. But my encouragement is don't let your circumstance in misinterpret who Jesus is. Don't let our culture tell you who Jesus is. Let the Holy Scriptures that are written for us, in this instance by someone who knew Him and is trying to explain to us that Jesus pre-existed and is the eternal personal Word of God. And He came to demonstrate for us. That's why in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus is the exact likeness of God. He is God and He cares about me. So when, I, when I'm speaking to Him, that's who I'm talking to. But get this, this is the thing that, that you know, I just feel so excited when I hear His voice speak to me. That's the Logos speaking to this little human, this one human out of billions on the face of the earth, that He actually speaks to me, cares for me, loves me, intercedes for me, helps me, provides for me. That's how great God is. Don't shrink your Jesus down to this meek and mild baby in a manger or to one of many gods. That is not who He is. He is more powerful. He is stronger. He is more able than we can even conceive in our human thinking. And He's always acting out of love on our behalf, no matter what you think you're going through. So here's how we're going to finish. Just close your eyes for a moment because if you, if you have a need in your life, my, I, I feel, you know, as I was praying and preparing for this during the week, I, was, I thought maybe there's going to be some people here. You feel like God has not heard you or maybe God's forgotten about you or maybe, you know, I've been asking God for something for so long or doesn't He know that I'm struggling here? That's how you feel. And we, we, all, we all experience that from time to time. But we're going to pray together. So if you have a need, I just want you in your own, you can just talk to God in your own mind, but I'm going to pray over all of us that the Logos, the one that pre-existed and sustains and created all life, 
He can come at any moment and actually step in on your behalf. So Father, we pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that Lord, any need, any struggle, any pain, the suffering, Lord, that some people, whether they're at East Campus or at North Campus, Father, we lift up every need before your throne. You are the great I am. There is no other name that is higher. There's no throne that is higher. There's no power that is greater. And Lord, we worship you, Jesus, as our God. You are the God. For every need, Father, that's in the hearts of our people, of our community, even their extended friends and family, will you intervene? Will you heal, deliver? Father God, would you make a way? Lord, would you speak to them? The Logos, the Rema Word of God, would you actually by your Spirit speak to them right now? to bring healing, comfort, strength. And Father, finally, I, from my heart, I pray that we would not shrink you down, but enlarge our understanding and our concept in the way we relate to you as the one who rules and reigns over all things. Father, we thank you for your cross, Jesus, that you obediently went to the cross, gave your life, and you rose again on the third day and that we live in that victory right now. Every single believer lives and walks in that victory. And so Father, because of your blood, because of your death and your resurrection and because your Holy Spirit lives in us, you are the Logos that was there before the beginning and you dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. Father, that's how we hang on to our understanding of you that You are greater than all things, above all things. We don't just sing it, but when we speak to You in prayer, when we cry out to You for a need, when we worship You from our very hearts, we do it in understanding as much as we can comprehend that You are God. And so, Father, for this Christmas season, we, we, go, we worship You. Not a tree, not gifts, not our cultural view, but we worship You. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. Thanks, guys. Going to hand back to.